you know, I think this analytics game, uh, legacy, it's about data. Give me information. And now I think we're moving from data to information, to decision-making, to decision-making that makes a difference in what a company does. I think this is about moving beyond the organization's people. It's the outside in societal impact on community. If I can help my organization, you know, if, if an executive, a CEO can help their organization be more inclusive, be more racially accepting, be more sustainable and create a purpose in their organization that has employees that all fit to that and it gets better. Then if thousands of organizations around the world are doing that, then the whole of society gets better. So I know that's very big and very grand, but for me, that's where people analytics will go. It will truly go to affecting society. I'm David Green, and welcome to episode one of series 16 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Dave Auric and then Jonathan Farrar talking about the importance and value of people analytics. Dave Auric is a professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan and co-founder of the RBL Group. With his colleagues, Dave has written over 30 books that have helped shape the HR profession, defined organizations as capabilities, and shown the impact of leadership on customers and investors. Jonathan Farrar is the CEO of Insight 222, a board member at the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, and co-author, with me, of our recently published book, Excellence in People Analytics. In this episode, which sees Dave taking my usual host chair, and Jonathan and I answering Dave's questions, we discuss some of the key messages from excellence in people analytics and the nine dimensions for excellence in people analytics we write about in the book. We also talk about the traditional HR functions attitude towards analytics, the skills the future HR professional needs and how more broadly people analytics will support a new approach to careers and upskilling for the organization. Throughout the discussion, we also cover several case studies from the likes of Microsoft, Nestle, and FIS. So we're starting off a new season of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with a special episode where Jonathan Farrar and I are actually in the hot seat. And we're going to be talking a little bit about our book, Excellence in People Analytics and, and related topics. So I'm going to turn over the mic to our guest host. And we're really thankful for you to be here. Dave Orich. You know, welcome to the show. It's really fun to be sitting in David's seat uh, as, the, as the guest host. Uh, welcome to my office and to David and Jonathan. What a privilege to, to be the podcast host on your show, David. And that's a real honor. First, let me turn to Jonathan. We've known each other for a long time. But some of the listeners may not be as aware of your background. Is there a couple of things that we should know about you? Well, first, uh, Dave, it's great to have you uh, hosting this and great to have you writing the forward for our book, Excellence in People Analytics. My background, I've been in HR for many years, uh, almost 30 years now. Uh, I've, I've worked in large organizations like IBM, uh, Anderson Consulting, Lloyds Bank, and thoroughly enjoyed my time as in various HR roles. Um, Probably what was interesting is that around 20 years into my career, I got offered a position in IBM to lead workforce analytics. And it was that role uh, that, that really motivated me tremendously towards this sort of digital and data future of HR. It, it, it really thrust me into a whole different way in which HR can be viewed and can contribute to an organization's success. Um, not least that I got the opportunity to move from London to New York as well, which for a Brit was a, a very, very exciting time. And I spent a you know, fantastic seven years in, in New York and uh, working across the United States. So, uh, you know, the, the, from, from my perspective, you know, my passion moved from general HR into this sort of world of how, how you can become evidence-based. And, uh, and that's uh, where I moved both my, my career, my life, and ultimately, set up Insight 222 as well, uh, along with David and, and others, to really focus and, and help chief human resource officers uh, get more from that uh, rich data set that exists in every organization, the data set of people and uh, organization. You know, what a great background uh, coming from the industry side and showing the value of evidence, the value of analytics. 
Thanks, Jonathan. And David, given you're the host of the show and the podcast, most people know you. They know you as an interviewer. But in case people may not know you well enough, what's a brief introduction to you and and perhaps more important, your work outside of the Leadership Podcast? Thanks, Dave. And just to echo uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for writing the foreword to our to our book. I think it's a perfect introduction to to to, to what we've written. Um, not quite been in the HR field for quite as long as Jonathan, but I've been in it for most of the last 25 years um, and been focused on people analytics for the past eight years. Interestingly, it was my time outside HR that inspired me to find out more and eventually get into people analytics, which maybe tells a bit of a story. Um, and interestingly, people analytics kind of brought Jonathan and I together as, as, as we regale in the book. Uh, worked together at IBM um, and then as Jonathan said um, with others helped create Insight 222 nearly four years ago and like Jonathan and I believe like you Dave um, you know I'm passionate about helping HR deliver more value to the business to the workforce and to society at large and I believe that people analytics is vital to helping HR to achieve this particularly in this very complex and uncertain world that we uh, currently living. You know, what a great background, a great introduction. People who may be just listening and not seeing, I'm, I've got the book, I'm proud of it. When I saw the book and I was asked by Jonathan and David to do a forward, I was just humbled because it says that, that their work and perhaps the work of so many others is really helping shape what HR can do. So for someone who may not yet have read the book, and I can't believe there's anyone left who hasn't <laughs> read this book, what's it about? Why did you write it? I'll take that one, actually, uh, uh, David, if you don't mind, because I think, um, you know, I think this goes back a, a couple of ways. Firstly, what is the book about? It's about people analytics. It pretty much is what it says on the tin, on the front cover, excellence in people analytics. It's about, you know, how uh, organizations can be excellent and how to strive for excellence in people analytics, in HR, in an evidence-based world. So we're really trying to bring out some of the, uh, some of the stories and some of the messages and, and uh, options that people have got to help HR become more evidence-based. That's really what the, the book's about, how it came about. I guess you, you probably have to look back uh, probably about five or six years, David and I met. Um, I mean, D David is, uh, like a little shout out to David. I mean, he's the undisputed world curator of people analytics material around the world. I, I think it's very clear um, when I was a practitioner that, that David was the person in the world that you went to when you wanted to find out something about people analytics. He, he's truly marvelous and he, he started writing these articles maybe six or seven years ago about you know the top 10 top 20 top 30 people analytics stories case studies etc and it, 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 you know I got to know David through that you know David David and I met up one day literally by you know David writing an article and I was mentioned in it and I was super grateful and I literally just phoned David up and said, I think it'd be great to meet. Um, so we met up and we had a great conversation and, and the rest is history, as you might say, and, and, and why, why we wrote this, you know, especially after I'd also written the previous book, The Power of People with Nigel and Sherry, was because there was so many people out there asking the question, the, the one question, who is doing people analytics well? And how do they do it? And so what we're trying to do is write many, many stories about where is people analytics uh, being received uh, greatly by the business and how are businesses managing to succeed with it? And we wanted to bring that out to everyone in the world. And Sherry, Nigel and I wrote The Power of People. We put in some case studies. And what we found with the feedback from that book was have you got more case studies? Are there more? Are there more stories? And so we've, David and I went out and found a plethora of case studies and stories. And then we, we put that together. And, and really, that's what excellence in people analytics is. It's the stories of what they've done and then options and, and tactics as to what to do if you're interested in making some of the same successes. You know, Jonathan, what a great background. It's fun to see how great colleagues come together. And I, uh, I will echo your shout out to David. I relish his curation. 
Uh, I've been an editor before on journals, and I so appreciate editors who can distill and synthesize information. Uh, I've said to people, David is the walking Google of our field, uh, and, uh, and terrific. So, Jonathan, what a great background about why you wrote it. You know, in the first chapter of the book, you start with the phrase, people analytics is not about analytics, it's about the business. That's consistent with where I think we have HR. Why did you pick those words? And what's, what's the message that you're trying to get out in that, in that agenda? If I take that one, Dave, I, it's slightly provocative, but deliberately so. Um, you know, and it, and it seems to have resonated. In fact, you've done a prop. We've even got T-shirts made up with the, with the phrase on as well. Um, but I think, and I know it's, it's, it's something that you've been saying. I think if there is a criticism of HR, sometimes we're a little bit too inward, inward focused and we need to be a bit more outward focused and, and think about solving outcomes. So what we're trying to emphasize is, you know, it's critical for people analytics to directly help the business to be successful and therefore work on things that improve topics such as sales, product innovation, supply chain effectiveness, culture change, inclusion, the list goes on. And I think fortunately what Jonathan and I have found, and I'm sure you found, Dave, on, on numerous occasions, is that many HR leaders think people analytics is for improving HR processes and, you know, and maybe just for reporting what's already happened. You know, and reporting what's happened is important, but it's not the be all and end all. Uh, and our experience teaches us that, that those companies that Jonathan was saying, those companies that are leading with people analytics, their business, they're, they're solving the problems that their business executives have got, you know, they're, they're focused on outcomes such as revenue, client delivery, rather than process like time to hire or attrition rates or something like that. And our recommendation and the way we've deliberately set out the book is, is to organize the people analytics function and focus its efforts on the work that directly impacts the business. When we come back in just a moment, more of the conversation between Dave, Jonathan and I as we explore the nine dimensions for excellence in people analytics in more detail. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by TechWolf. TechWolf uses AI to identify skills. Why? Because companies who know their workforce's skills data are better equipped to face change. The best insight in skills wins, but how? Getting skills data used to be a long administrative process, not anymore. Thanks to TechWolf's breakthrough use of AI and natural language processing in particular, skills can now automatically be extracted from HR and non-HR data sources like HRIS, learning platforms, or project management tools. With TechWolf's connected skills API, you can get a fully automated and continuous overview of your people's evolving skills in less than eight weeks. To learn more, visit techwolf.ai. That's techwolf.ai. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Dave Auric and Jonathan Farrar. Now, back to the conversation. You know, I love that start. I, uh, we've done research in this space and we did a big, we've done studies with lots of data. A lot of people talk about analytics. We try to do it. And we looked at competencies of HR people. And one of the competencies is, do they have competence in analytics? And what we found is it didn't connect with business results unless the focus of the analytics was on the business. Measuring the activities of HR, how many people got 40 hours of training, wasn't the impact. Did that training have an impact? And so HR is not about HR. It's about helping a business succeed. And I love that message. And, and I think this book is so powerful because of it. Now, to make that come alive, you've got two choices. You've got great case studies that Jonathan alluded to. And then you distill, as David is the great curator, what are the dimensions of those case studies? Let's start with dimensions. So across these case studies, and there's not just 30. I know you could do more than that because people will say, well, why am I not in the book? And the answer is, you'll be in the next one. Um, but let's start. You've got nine dimensions that you distill. Which one of those nine dimensions kind of jumps out at you? Is, is If I'm listening to this, trying to say, how do I use people analytics to do what David just said? 
to deliver better business value, which where should I where should I look? Yeah, Dave, I, I think um, models and, and tactics are, are things that are very complex to sometimes get across. And people often like to think analytically and sequentially. You know, I'll start with this, and if I go through it, then I can get there. And if you know, if I'm already a little bit um, mature, then I can you know skip the first two stages, and I can I can you know start the journey a bit later. But we deliberately chose a circle as the as the figure, and it's on. When we asked the publisher, could you put our model on the front cover? Um, because the circle is really important because circles don't have a place to start and they don't have a place to stop. They're continuous. You're always going around them, and therefore our dimensions. Are, are, are represented in the same format. No one dimension is more important than the other. And you don't start at a particular place and stop at a different, at a particular place. It's all about the journey and it's all about the continuity. For example, we've split them into three areas. There's, there's foundational aspects, there's resources like uh, people, skills, technology, and data. And then there's outcomes, there's, there's value, there's uh, you know, value for the people, the workforce themselves, value for the business, value for the HR organization and the culture and things like that. And, and the purpose of the model is to say, Whatever you're doing, wherever you are as a function of HR, there are things that you could do better to get more excellence from an evidence-based world. For some people, it might be talking to stakeholders, business leaders, and asking them what they need from their people, how the, how the people could contribute more to their business. But for another organization, it could be that they need to implement a data strategy to bring together different data sources and, and make more from the, the raw material, the data. And yet for others, it could be, well, we know we've got great data, we've got masses of technology, we've got a great team, but actually we're struggling to demonstrate the value to the organization. So focus on the outcomes. So we wanted to, to dispel this myth that everything in analytics has to start at one point and finish at another and go through a series of maturity phases and actually really represent that analytics and becoming evidence-based is for anyone and everyone. And there are nine, we think there are nine areas or dimensions that you can focus on and you can achieve excellence in each of those nine and there's always room for growth and, and so that's why we did it and that's why the, the model is circular as well just to emphasize that it's this continuous uh, journey of, of of making the function the discipline the uh, activities uh, always striving for more to get to that point of excellence i was gonna so uh, sorry dave i was gonna add it's interesting isn't it jonathan when we Asked, I'll try to answer that question that you said at the start, you know, what are the most successful people analytics functions doing? You know, we find that the ones that are maybe less successful or not successful as they could be, if that's a more polite way of putting it, they tend to focus inward looking at their, the skills in their team, the data or the quality of data and the technology that they're using to do it. And they don't necessarily focus on some of those foundational elements that you mentioned, Jonathan, such as going out and speaking to stakeholders in the business and finding out what they need and don't focus on delivering the outcomes. And that can stymie their growth a little bit, so, which again kind of links to the fact that all nine are important. Sorry, Dave, I interrupted you. No, I, I love the addition because I think, I, I know when I began our field, the first book I wrote was called Organizational Capability. And then the subtitle was Competing from the Inside Out. If we build it, they will come, a field of dreams. And so you focus inside, then you go outside. Well, one of the last books is outside in, start outside and then come inside. And the answer, Jonathan and David, you both said brilliantly is make it a virtuous cycle. I don't really care if you start inside. What do you do to hire and train and develop people? I'm going to get to that in just a minute, David, with, I hope, a tough question. Or if you start outside, who are our customers, investors? How do we serve them? But if you can't begin to connect those two, and I think you're nine dimensions allow that connection to happen it's a virtuous cycle that builds on each other and that's one of the one of the takeaways that i really like again jonathan i agree with you i think a lot of hr people tend to start inside which leads me to my next question how does this analytical approach we in hr are inundated with tough issues we're 
really tough issues around social justice, diversity, racial inequality, refugees, sustainability, employment, uh, remote working, hybrid working. I mean, David, you know this list better than anybody because you curate it. We get inundated with what Steve Covey calls the urgent. We get, we're demanded to do what has to be done, get people at home working, get people back to work in an office, diversity, emotional well-being. What does analytics do to help me with that? With all of those day-to-day pressures, what does this analytics logic do to help me? It, it's interesting, actually, as we were writing the book, and we probably wrote, I don't know, 75% of it, maybe more, actually, after the pandemic started. We had started it before, um, but we did pause when that's once the pandemic started, and I'm glad we did, um, because it's almost acted as a catalyst for people analytics to shift it into what we talk at the next, the next era. We call it the age of value in the book. And that very much we've seen this shift from providing people analytics for HR to providing people analytics for the business. And in the epilogue of the book, we talk about the future of people analytics. I know we're going to talk about that a bit later, but we talk about things like the human experience of work, the CEO skills conundrum, investor demands. If we look at some of the moves by the SEC, for example, in the US and, uh, and the ISO standard for human capital reporting, and then improving society, which I think is some of those topics, those difficult topics that, that, that you've mentioned. You know, clearly that one is possibly the most difficult, but it is possible. Uh, in the book, um, Kathleen Hogan, the chief people officer at Microsoft, uh, kindly gave a, a, a CHRO's perspective just after your forward, actually, Dave. Uh, and also we've got a case study from Dawn Klinghoffer, who runs the people analytics function at Microsoft. And what's really interesting is they already did a daily pulse of, of staff. So they'd go out to 1,500 randomly selected people. I mean, obviously not that randomly because obviously they want to make sure it's representative of the workforce every day uh, with some questions, uh, you know, continuous listening program. They stepped that up to 2,500 people uh, during the crisis. Um, so they're looking at the some of the stuff that you're talking around, remote working, coming back into the office, but they're also looking at the, the racial inequality challenges that presented themselves last year after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and they were able to obviously ask different questions. They had the capability within the team to analyze text, uh, massive amounts of text, um, and help the organization navigate its way through these crises as well by giving information to leaders helping shape their communications, um, helping shape the questions, that the follow-up questions that they ask to really dig deeper into how employees are feeling, but then also shaping how um, Microsoft approach coming back into the office, how Microsoft approached its flexible ways of working and how Microsoft approached its, you know, you know responding to some of the concerns that, 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 that their employees had around inequality and, and, and gender imbalance. So I think that's one where people, area that people analytics is really helping. Another area that Jonathan and I are seeing increasingly, and you're probably seeing it as well, Dave, is where organizations are using people analytics to understand, you know, moving beyond diversity metrics, but actually looking at inclusivity, looking at things like homophily, which for the benefit of listeners that, that don't know, and I've, I've written it down, is the tendency of individuals to associate and bond with similar others. So it's kind of that birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. And actually using people analytics to understand that within an organization as well. Um, and we're seeing a growing number of companies doing that, looking at passive data, collaboration data, understanding networks, understanding are our teams inclusive, are our leaders inclusive, and trying to highlight the real cause of issues of, of, of things like gender inequality as well and other types of inequality. So I think it's quite early. Some organizations are further ahead than others, but I think this is an area that we will see more of um, in the coming years. And the, I think the appetite is there. And I think the capability and the technology is increasingly there to support these efforts as well. You know, I, I think this analytics game, uh, legacy is about data. Give me information. And now I think we're moving from data to information to decision-making, to decision-making that makes a difference in what a company does. You know, evidence-based, and Jonathan has used the term already three times, it's not a brand new topic. I mean, HR, good HR people, they're legacy people. I think of Mark Huslid uh, and others who have just been incredibly good at legacy and evidence in HR. 
so what's got to change? What's got to happen so that it's not just how much data can I collect? Because at some level, we get overwhelmed with data. Uh, we do another survey. We do another database. How do we make sure that the data is not just information, but it, that it's information that leads to better decision making, like you talked about at Microsoft? What a great example. Yeah, there's some, I mean, Dave, this, it's really fascinating. I mean, when you've been around a function like, like we have for some time, it, it, you see incremental steps and then sometimes you get a light bulb moment and you think that's what, what it's like. And I had one of those today. I was, I was, I had a meeting with a, with a client. There were uh, a number of, we've done some workshops with some HR professionals, some um, early career HR professionals from all over the world in this client. And then we had like a review session today, which was like, you know, what have you learned? Um, and, and what do you want to learn next? And, and I was the, the, the sort of, um, you know, the person that they that had delivered some of the training earlier and we were just doing this review session. And I had this, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. Early career, HR professional. And the question was, what did you learn from the, the data uh, uh, analytics workshop we did two months ago? Um, what have you learned and, and what have you put into practice? And, and this, um, this lady uh, came on and said, I, 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 as a direct result of that workshop, I went and did some analysis on employee value proposition. And, uh, and we you know, managed to change the, and, and affect the decision-making of, of the leadership team that I was working with. This is a, a person that was a part of an HR business partner group that they're working in an organization with multiple locations, multiple countries, et cetera. And, and this lady, she was just, oh, it was so good. I, I managed to look at um, some quantitative data, number of data elements, and we looked at that. And then we added to that some qualitative data. We sent out a survey. We got, and, I, and I said, how did you do that survey? How did you look at the text, the comments that you got? I said, I just, I just got a spreadsheet. I just started with some, you know, like Excel, and I just started categorizing things and then I mapped that back to the quantitative data and I said what was the result what happened and she said it was just amazing the executive team was was so surprised and I said what happened with that surprise she said it just changed the conversation we started making decisions based on the facts of the data and they were surprised that I'd managed to get so much information from qualitative data and from the you know the sort of normal demographic data and and she said it just changed the whole conversation and I think it's moments like that where firstly I just get so excited you can probably tell because it's people in HR that have have taken an approach to using data and turned it into real life examples helping employees helping the business helping the business executives think about employee value proposition, not from a load of words and comments that they just put on a PowerPoint and float about, but actually driven by analysis that can drive a conversation that can lead to action. And it's just so exciting when you get to that point. And, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to help multiple tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of HR professionals think about data it's not a scary thing. It, you can do it and you can look at it and you can infuse executives with, with that surprise moment and, and drive different decisions. It's just fascinating. Uh, and that literally happened about three hours ago with me. It was just so exciting. And, and if we can do that multiple times, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll move into my non-work non career, <laughs> my non-work life. A very happy person because that's what we're talking about you know how can hr become evidence-based well we hope you didn't just announce that you're leaving uh <laughs> that would be terrible i think you have more data to give can i just echo that i uh i love data my my phd decades ago is on numerical taxonomy and statistics that's my training we love big data sets we did a big data set and jonathan you'll probably laugh with this we looked at tens of thousands of people. We looked at patterns. And one of our colleagues who was very prominent in the field, and I won't name the person, obviously, looked at it and he said, well, that data is really interesting, but I really think. And I remember I was on the phone with a small group and I said, stop, 
what you think is good. But we now have data from 20,000 people. And I think sometimes, Jonathan, as you just alluded to, because everybody does HR. Everybody does HR. We all manage our people. We pay attention. I think there is something to be said with the question, how do you know? How do you know? And this analytics work you're bringing is so critical. Now, my second thing, Jonathan, I so like your comment. There are two kinds of data. One is quantitative. That data set of thousands of people is so helpful. The other is qualitative. What is your experience? What does your instinct tell you? And I think this book brings those two together in a brilliant way. We need the instinct, the unstructured data, the qualitative to get insight, which I know is part of your theme and the name of your company and the, and the goal. It's often called unstructured data. Be an anthropologist. And we need structured data. So, Jonathan, I'm getting more excited than you are. I, I, I guess there's a little club, Statistics Geeks Unite, and uh, we may be the only few members. But let me go back. Imagine somebody listening to this podcast. What's it for? What would this book do for somebody who listens to this and then obviously gets the book and, and don't just buy the book, use the book? Who's going to use it? And what will they use this book for? I mean, primarily, we wrote it for the chief HR officer or chief people officer and their peers. Um, and essentially, the case studies are provided to highlight what is possible with analytics and how to use data more cleverly uh, in, in HR. Um, I mean, it's difficult. Is it? You want the case studies to inspire. You don't want people then to just try, try and go out and copy them because they need to actually learn that the key thing about that case study is that organization went out and found out what were the biggest business challenges facing their organization and use analytics to help solve that. Um, but I think they are there to inspire as well. And I know, Jonathan, obviously you you had some case studies in the power of people as well. Yeah, I think, you know, Dave, to that question, what we're trying to do is provide real stories that inspire a chief human resource officer or a business executive to say, that's what we need. We need some of that. Now, how do we go and do it? And then almost to go to the, you know, to, a, to an HR leader that's got responsibility or people analytic practitioner and say, you know, can we bring some of this alive in our company? Can we, can we, you, I mean, that's what books, that's why we write books. That's why you write books, Dave. That's why we write books, you know, which is, and that's why David curates all this material is to try and bring together real good examples so that it inspires people you know uh, i'm sure there's that famous quote isn't the plagiarism is the highest compliment that you can get but when, as david says we're not looking for people to copy word for word you know what someone's done because what's good in one business might not be right for another but we're looking for people to be inspired and we're looking for executives senior executives top executives in organizations to be inspired by these stories so that they go out and say, I want to do some of that as well. I want to change my function to deliver that sort of value to my organization. You know, I love, I love what you are doing, obviously, and, 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 and was, have been privileged to participate. What we're finding, and I want to build on that a little bit, and then, and then tell you one of the other things I'm seeing and ask a question about it is, in HR, we love benchmarking. How do I compare to someone else? Then we love best practices. Who's doing great stuff? Then we love predictive analytics. What makes them great? But David and Jonathan, what I like about your book is you go the next step. And when you talk about inspiring, the word we've been using is guidance. I, I want to benchmark. How am I doing? I want to get a best practice. I want to go learn from these 30 great case studies. I want to be predictive. What did they do? But what I want is guidance for me. And that's what I love about your book is you're moving the analytics field not just around uh, some great case studies that are inspiring, but around what I can do that will work in my company. Now, one of the resistances I often hear, I went into HR because I like people. I didn't like that statistics course, that math course. What if I'm not really good at statistics? What if math and analytics just scares me? I'm a people person. What do I do with that? Then, and I get scared by that word analytics. You know, I, it takes me back to 1998. I, I was doing my uh, diploma in human resource management at the time, and a class full of uh, 60 people, and and um, 
we had a st statistics class and I'd done statistics back in university as well. So, you know, everyone said, Hey, Jonathan, why do you find this so interesting? You know, and I got the same thing and it's like, I'm, I just happen to have an aptitude for it. You know, I, what interests me is the outcome. Like statistics is just a tool to get to an outcome. You don't have to love statistics. You don't even have to know statistics. If you know someone that does, they can help you with that. What you really need to have is a passion for the outcome, a passion for what your business does and a passion for what makes success in your organization. Do you speak a second language? Well, no, I don't actually. Not, not fluently, anyway. And I'm going to model what Jonathan just said. Moi, j'habitais à Montréal pour trois ans et j'ai dû parler en français tout le temps. Statistics is a second language. You know what? I'm not fluent in French. And anybody listening would go, uh, I, I actually tried that with somebody I was coaching who's French. And I said, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. And he said, uh, what did that mean? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, but what you've got to have, Jonathan, is enough of the language to get around. I, and you said that beautifully. I don't have to become a statistics expert. And there are statistics that I clearly don't understand. But you've got to have enough that you're not threatened. Learn the basic vocabulary. Know how to find a restroom in statistics. There's a lot of them. Know how to order coffee. Know how to, know how to find directions. And then don't be threatened by it. I, Jonathan, I interrupted you, but I just feel so strongly that I I made, what did you study in college, John? I studied English, English literature. I mean, that's about as far from statistics as you can get. What did you study, Jonathan? I studied pharmacology. Oh, that's even worse than English. <laughs> uh, but, but don't be threatened by it. It's better to have a passion for the outcome and know a little bit about statistics and where to get the help than it is to know loads about statistics but not have an interest in the outcome. I love it. We've often used the word so that. I want to do training, so that. I want to do hiring, so that. I want to have work at home, so that. And that outcome becomes so critical. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Dave and Jonathan, where we're going to explore more about how people analytics can be used to support business outcomes. So given, given that we've now relieved the fears of all HR people, by the way, what I think you've just seen is look at three people on the phone, none of whom are statistics experts, and we're writing about analytics. In fact, I get scared when I go into a group of statisticians because they're going to challenge my statistics. And my answer is always, this is a hint for HR challenge away. I'm not going to defend the statistics. I want to defend the logic behind it. So, so how do businesses use the dimensions you've come up with to really help the business and the HR people in the business make a difference? Let me pick up on the maturity term first, and then uh, I'll let Jonathan finish. But, you know, I think by the middle of the 2010s, and we, we can all go back, People analytics maturity models were everywhere. We all know the one. They start with basic reporting and they end up with prescriptive analytics or cognitive analytics. And I think maturity models were probably helpful in the early stages of, of people analytics as people became familiar with what it was. And I think uh, certainly I know of practitioners who use them within their organizations to almost describe what analytics is and could be to, to their leaders. Um, but I think we've now reached a stage where they're counter, well, we, we believe that we've reached a stage where they're now counterproductive for people analytics, to be honest with you. Um, if we think about people analytics and we think about maturity models, I think there are a number of deficiencies. They imply that you that it's linear for a start. You, you must get, you must organize your data and perfect reporting before you can do analytics. And that's not true. Uh, we've seen organizations doing both in parallel. Um, and I think you can, you know, um, and actually you should be doing that in parallel. You continually need to be looking at your dashboards and making sure that they're relevant with, with the business metrics. 
Um, and indeed, you probably require both if you're going to be tackling a, a big business problem uh, as well. Um, so I don't know, Jonathan, if you if you'd like to elaborate on how we've set up the nine dimensions to to kind of operate in parallel. We've already you've already talked about that a little bit, but yeah, I mean, yes, we've talked about um, the nine dimensions. I think to me, you know, if I, because often, Dave, we get asked this question, you know, where, you know, where, where should we start? What should we do, et cetera? And of course, you go around the, the question and technique. But if I were um, just asking people to think about one thing, I'd probably point them towards chapter eight in the book and say, just read about business outcomes. Just read those three case studies. Just And just forget what it is that you've got forget what you're trying to do forget what you've got in terms of tools and raw materials and things like that just think about the business read those three case studies and then then reflect and then you can start at page one if you want to but i, I would like almost jump to chapter eight first and look at that business outcome and say you know what is it that the organizations have done because of this, because I think that gives a really solid foundation for thinking about the, the the art of the possible from an outcome point of view. You know, Jonathan, I really like it. I have your book in front of me for those who are not hearing this visually. And I have the picture that's on the cover. And as you were speaking, I thought, close your eyes and throw a dart. <laughs> Hit one of the nine and get started. But then I love what you said at the end, and I've gone to chapter eight, which I think is really nice, business outcomes. And you have three cases, MetLife, Nestle, IBM. I love the idea of an HR person going to a business meeting and saying, as you said, what are we trying to accomplish around here? Both with customers, investors, strategy. And once you get that outcome clear because of, what can we now bring to that discussion? What Again, what I love about the book is once you get that conversation, it doesn't matter if you're inside out or outside in because you're connecting them. You've each looked at 30 firms in this book and other firms and, and, and David curates every month and Jonathan writes a new book every year or two. So you've got dozens and dozens. Is there one case study that just stands out that think about uh, a listener? a senior executive, a head of HR, a senior HR person, somebody charged with analytics. Is there one case study that stands out that you'd like to get that listener to pay attention to? One quick vignette, maybe from each of you. David, I don't know what yours is, but... Mine's not the same. Mine's Nespresso, so... I'll, I'll... Oh, gosh. You know, they're all great in their own way. One, I'll let David talk about Nespresso, the Nestle one, in Chapter 8, because it is truly remarkable my personal love of that one is, is that use of the language and, and David will explain it. Obviously you've chosen that one. I was going to actually say that one, David, because I, um, but the one that, that strikes me from, from an HR executive point of view, and, I, and I'll put it in the words of, if you're an HR executive listening to this and you've been in HR for some years, then you've probably been in that situation where you've redesigned a process like an HR process, let's redesign it, people aren't happy, blah, 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 let's do it. And the one that, that, that struck me was when Isabel and they do FIS talked to us about how FIS redesigned performance management. And the great thing about it was, was that it linked very much to one of the other ones. So basically, cut it very short, they redesigned the performance management process by using both quantitative and qualitative data to really understand what the consumers of performance management wanted. And the consumers of performance management are employees. They receive performance management discussions. Managers, they have to do it. Executives, they roll it up and have to make all sorts of things happen because of performance management. And there's lots of debates in, in the world about should performance management change and exist? And, you know, is it only a compliance thing to help you know, stay out of jail, or is it, you know, something more, more fruitful for employee conversations and, and career development, and things like that. But the great thing about what they did is they just used data to really go and find out what the consumers of performance management want. And then they used evidence to explain to managers, as an example, if you have purposeful feedback conversations with employees, 
every quarter, you will keep your employees longer and have higher business results. And I think that's just profound because it means that when they went to design, redesign performance management, they did it from using data, using the evidence and making people want to do it because who wouldn't want to use a new process that keeps your employees longer and helps you achieve better business results as a manager? I mean, it's just remarkable. And the great thing is, Dave, and I said there was another one early in the book, I think it's chapter one, if I remember correctly, there's a case study from Trimble, which talks about branding people analytics, but a a subtext of that case study also talks about using data to prove that feedback with employees enables better business results. And I think it's just fascinating when you get to these case studies and there's I think you said it earlier, you know, every, everyone's an HR person, aren't they? You know, every manager knows what to do. They think they know what to do. But to have data to prove these things is just profound. I think it, it just makes me so enthusiastic about the future of business that, that I, I just love that. But David, you're going to talk about Nespresso. David, what's your story? Yeah, so again, very hard to choose a favorite one. So it's not necessarily a favorite one, but I think it's one that, I think should resonate with the audience, particularly those that aren't necessarily working people analytics roles themselves, because it talks about the power of language. Um, and I'm not going to do it in French, that's for sure. Um, and it relates to Nestle's Nespresso business. So, you know, it started off with a hypothesis, probably a hypothesis that, that many organizations have had from the HR team, that the completion of a particular training course for former stress, former Nespresso led to higher commercial success of a boutique uh, so all the boutiques that they've got they've got dotted around the world um, however the the analyses actually disproved that there was they found that the completion of the course made no real difference to boutique performance but interestingly that by doing that work they created an energy and an interest from business leaders um, to find out to test other hypotheses uh, with the people analytics team and the insight that actually eventually caught the imagination was that the voluntary termination of rates of the boutique manager, so the person running each of these boutiques, was strongly related to boutique sales performance. So everyone agreed that this was quite an interesting insight. Um, The people analytics team went away and they quantified that in financial terms and they communicated this out to, to people in the business at various levels and it didn't land. And they couldn't understand because it was the, the financial impact were, was, was quite significant, but it didn't land. So they went away, they thought again, they thought about the business that they were serving and they reframed it from a financial benefit into the number of capsules sold in a boutique. Mm-hmm. And this resonated with the people that made the capsules in the factories, the people that, that actually pushed the, the, the capsules into the boutiques themselves. Even the finance team, it resonated with more, but obviously it obviously really resonated with the people working in the boutiques as well and created that energy around it. And I think what it showed is you can have all the best analytics in the world. You can get some great insights, but just as it is in so many walks of life, it's the way that you tell the story that can actually make the difference between things actually being actioned um, and, and not being actioned. So I think that was a really good lesson really on on the power of storytelling what i take from that lesson is and both of you have said very strongly that in hr we don't start with hr we start with the business what are the business results executives care about and and that could be financial it could be number of pills it could be innovation cycle whatever it could be in tobin's q intangible market value it could be social responsibility how does what i know and how does what we do in hr linked to those outcomes. And, and I think both those stories demonstrate that. So I'm going to ask a little impromptu question here. You've got a book with 30 case studies. The goal of this book is not to go get to know 30 companies. I mean, you can go to a training program. And as you said, that may not have impact. The goal is that a certain number of people create their own case study. That's for us, the evolution of, of analytics. It's not about benchmarking or best practice or even predictive analytics. It's about guidance to create your case study. 
So if you were talking to me, and let's assume I'm one of those targets you're after, an HR person, an analytics person, a business leader, I want to go create my case study that will help my business succeed through the analytics advice you'd give me. In just one minute, and this is a bit unscripted, what would you tell me to do? Uh, by the way, first of all, you'd say, go buy my book and read it through. <laughs> That's a joke. But what would, and I'm, I'm feeling while you each think about that, what would you tell me to do so that I can get the guidance to create a case study that works for me. I hope these 30 case studies turn into 300 and 3,000. I mean, that's the agenda. So what would you tell me to go, where would you tell me to go do? You know, I hope that the 30 companies that are represented in the book have another 30 case studies and another on top of that and another. And I think, hope everyone, are, are, you know, builds their own case studies. And a case study could be as small as the example I gave earlier of the person I was on a call with you know, earlier today who who got some new results because they helped clarify the employee value proposition by using data to help that executive make decisions. That is a case study. And, it, and it's perfect because that means that some people in the world will have in the future a better work experience and a better working life. And they will therefore be happier as a person and the business will be more fulfilled. And if we can get hundreds of thousands of those little case studies, I think the, the, the whole of business will be superb. But if I was, you know, if you, as an executive, Dave, I'd come to you and say, number one, go talk to some business executives, find out what's on their minds, find out what they truly want to improve across the business. Then when you've got under the cover of that, understand the people aspects of that. What is it? about the people in the organization that will achieve that goal that, or, or overcome that challenge that that executive's got. Then go look at the foundations. You know, have you got the raw materials? Have you got the, the setup of, of, of skills, operating model, things like that? Get into the, the resources you've got. Have you got the data? Have you got the tech? You know, then move around into that. But I, I'd say I would spend, it's a bit like the 80-20 rule. I'd spend 80% of the time just focusing on what is it the business actually wants to achieve because that's your case study. You don't know it at that point, but that's your case study is what the business wants to achieve, whether that's they want to achieve better employee experience, better inclusion, you know, higher revenue, better customer experience, you know, whatever it is, that's the bit, the case study. And then, and then, the rest is is work, as you might say. The rest is just work. Of course, just work is very hard. But but once you've got to the bottom of what the business wants, that's your case study um, that you're building. I was just going to add to that, actually. Interest is a couple of case studies, actually, in the stakeholder management chapter, chapter three from Johnson & Johnson and Syngenta that talk about the approach that the two people analytics leaders there actually took to actually engaging directly with the business and informing the work that they did exactly in the way that Jonathan just outlined there. No, I really like it because I think in the HR field, in the 90s, we got invited to the table. I mean, that's, we're there. Now the question is, what do you do when you're there? And you've both given us guidance on how to do it. So I, it's always scary to say, you've just spent years writing this book. What's next? Because, uh, I remember getting asked that after we did a big study and they said, so what's next? And I thought, learn this one. <laughs> um, but, but you both have crystal balls into the future because of the purchase you sit on. What do you see? What's, what's coming in the next few years? I'd like to leave David to answer, to have the final say, because he is, as I said up front, as you acknowledge, Dave, he's just the world's best curator. So he's got a library, a Wikipedia in his head of stuff. <laughs> to, to set him up, I think this is about moving beyond the organization's people. It's the outside in societal impact on community. I think it's all the, the, the topics of, if I can help my organization, you know, if, if an executive, a CEO can help their organization be more inclusive, be more racially um, accepting, be more um, uh, sustainable, and, and, you know, create a purpose in their organization that has employees that all fit to that and, and, and it gets better. Then if thousands of organizations around the world are doing that, then the whole of society gets better. So I know that's very big and very grand, but for me, that's where people analytics will go. It, it will truly go to affecting society. Just to add to that, I, 
I mean, in many respects, people analytics is only really scratching at the surface. I mean, obviously, in some organizations, it's much more embedded than others. Um, and I think we've seen with the pandemic that the people analytics teams and a number of organizations have really stepped up. They're working closer with their, their CEOs and their boards to, to shape really important topics around future ways of working. I know we're going to talk about skills a little bit in a, in a minute. Um, but I think that what we're seeing now is, is, you know, people aren't asking now, you know, what is people analytics and why is it important? It's how can I be better at it? How can I help upskill my HR team to, to be more capable and ask some of those questions and be more comfortable with the, the areas of statistics that they need to be comfortable with to be better maybe with storytelling with data? And, and how can I, as an HR professional, you know, have those conversations with the business and really dig into what are the challenges and then what are the people elements of that and what can we test using analytics and to help move the dial a bit so um it's I, we talked a bit earlier around the, the around the epilogue uh, uh, you know and and i see the really big opportunity which is again we not that many people are talking about at the moment is you know Bodies like the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, now mandating that, that, that companies disclose information around, around human capital. And I do hate that term, human capital, but let's just call it people data. Disclosing some of that, you know, and, and investors will be making decisions about companies based on the quality of that, of that human capital uh, data. And I think that's the big opportunity for, for us uh, in the HR field, uh, you know, over the next few years. You know, I think uh, there's a great quote by uh, Martin Luther King, an, uh, an American avant-garde civil rights leader. And he began a speech that he'd known, I have a dream speech. The first element of that speech that he repeated was now is the time. Now is the time. And I believe now is the time. I think that SEC data, we've been looking at that. It was required. And in the last six months, 7,000 firms have reported. And it is lousy. The reports range from 150 words to 1,500 words. We need analytics to guide us to make those reports so that the world is better served. And Jonathan, I love your ambition. I know it's idealistic. I want to save the world, you know, one starfish at a time, that old metaphor. But we're doing it. And your work is so powerful. Now, David, in all of your podcasts with the Digital HR Leaders podcast, and I hope people listen. And by the way, it is so much more fun to be on the questioning side than the receiving side. I remember when I was no longer a student and didn't have to take a test and I got to give a test. It's more fun to give a test than take one. But you always ask this question, how can the HR people analytics identify the skills for the future? Because that's a common question. What does this mean for the skills of our future? Well, I'll, I'll have a stab at that. I'll let, I'll let Jonathan add to it. So, yeah, and, and this is a question that, that we're going to be asking all the guests in this in this particular series. Well, you know, as, as you both know, skill skill availability is high on the CEO's agenda. I've seen the data from McKinsey highlighting nearly 80% of CEOs are concerned about skill availability and, and then that impact on innovation, cost, quality and growth. And that's a situation that's probably been exacerbated by the, by the pandemic. So the lens is intensifying on HR and people analytics teams when it comes to skills. I think, Dave, you wrote something a couple of years ago, actually, around how workforce planning was now was, was really been now becoming work, you know, almost a focus on tasks and skills rather than jobs, maybe, when we've been looking at in the past. You know, people analytics is the heart of this. And just some examples. You know, people analytics is, is, is obviously working and, and HR professionals working with the organization to really understand the business strategy and translating this into, into skills, skills now, skills for the future. Using natural language processing, for example, to infer the skills of the workforce rather than going out and asking people what their skills are. And then understanding adjacent skills to that to, to help people um, acquire those quickly, perhaps, and, and, and blending that with learning. Obviously, understanding from some of the external data that's out there, um, the volume, location, availability of skills, using this to inform strategy around site location, for example, uh, recruitment, learning, mergers and acquisitions. Um, also, to, to that kind of build versus buy versus bot, maybe as well, in terms of understanding uh, skills. And I think what we're seeing is people analytics is almost helping 
bring traditional silos in HR, such as learning, such as mobility, such as uh, succession, such as workforce planning together. And the thread that's linking them together is some of that skills data. Um, you know, and we're seeing organizations now developing some of those talent marketplaces, either working directly with some of the, the vendors that are growing fast, that they're all building some of these products themselves that actually help employees navigate their careers within the organization, maybe work on projects where they can use some of the skills that they've got that they're maybe not using in their, in their current role to help develop some of those skills to identify mentors, to, to really help shape their careers within organizations. And obviously the, the, the benefit of the organization is it helps grow those skills in areas that they need. I think back, you know, 16 months ago, 18 months ago, 20 months ago, we had no idea of what the world was going to be like. Uh, and that we've, ex all of us uh, globally have experienced. And the ability to respond, the businesses have responded to that. It's been incredibly, tough for some businesses and on the other hand it's been it's been you know a, 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 an impetus for other businesses um strangely and and for employees and workers you know for some people it's been terrible times i mean really uh, drastic horrible personal and career times but for other people they've come out of it blossoming there was some report in in the uk that said you know 20 percent of people have more money now than they had before the pandemic which is you don't want to think of the pandemic like that because it makes you feel guilty about all the horrible things and the devastating losses that people have one of the the the, the things that has come out of the pandemic is that work and workers are more thought about now than ever before in human history and that's because the choices that workers have got, the people have got, are now exacerbated, greatly exacerbated by the ability to work remotely, differently, in different things. Not every skill, not every type of business, granted, I understand that, but there are large chunks of the economy where there are different uh, options now available to employees. And that gives businesses different employees as well. And so I think the need for teams, HR, finance, supply chain, real estate, you know, et cetera, to all work together to really help workers and workforces manage through these different skill challenges, these remote hybrid skill challenges, these inability to have immigration, you know, many countries don't have much immigration now, you know, because of the pandemic. And so there's there's all these challenges that go, but the, the bottom line of all of that is that what David and I have seen, what many have witnessed is that the ability, the, the use of data in the people profession has vastly expanded during the global pandemic and the need for CEOs and C-suite executives to have this sort of data to help them know where the skills are, what the skills they need and how to get those skills is more valuable now than ever before in any industry before the pandemic. So now is the time for HR to, to quote the uh, Martin Luther King quote, you know, now absolutely is the time. You know, I let me just, we're wrapping up our interview, but let me thank you. A number of years ago, I did a study with Arthur Young on learning. And we discovered that learning was the following definition, generate and generalize, so create new ideas, but ideas with impact. And let me thank the two of you. You've generated ideas, you're generalizing those ideas through your books and your articles and your work, but it's ideas with impact that got picked up as a tagline for a couple of magazines. That's the message that you bring is ideas with impact. So how do people access your ideas that will have impact? I know you've got a firm, Insight 222. You've got a book people should pick up. David obviously curates every, every month. What could people do to pick up your ideas that will have impact as you continue to provide learning to others? Well, the book's available at all digital and physical retailers. It's all on different Amazons that, that you can find around the world. And if you go to the book homepage, uh, which is insight222.com forward slash book, you can find out more about what we do at Insight 222 as well. I just want to say as well, Dave, thank you so much for, you know, continuing to inspire us. 
um, with the work that you're doing now and the work that you've done for, for decades. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly the work that you touched on a little bit today around your the organisation guidance system, I think, is uh, is definitely as you said, a moonshot for HR and something that we're all inspired by as well. I do that. You can follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter if you really want to as well. Yeah, I mean, David's a prolific uh, curator, follower, social media expert. I mean, I'd probably say follow David, <laughs> david.green at inside222.com, email him, um, follow him on Twitter, etc. Um, just generally, though, we, we have a, um, a resource, um, you know, a website with lots and lots of resources. You can get a, a multitude of information off it. And it's actually very easy to remember. MyHRFuture.com. And if you want to enhance your HRFuture.com, go to MyHRFuture.com. You know, I'm going to end my comments. Um, and I've referred to Martin Luther King. There were four phrases he repeated. Now is the time. We will not be satisfied. I have a dream. And then I'm going to end with his fourth one. With this dream, go back. With this dream, go back. And he said it five or six times. I hope the discussion today is the beginning, not the end. With this dream, go back and begin to make a difference. Jonathan, David, thank you so much for the exceptional work you've done and the best work that will be yet done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Next week on the podcast, we'll be speaking to Rob Cross, Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and founder and chief research scientist at Connected Commons about a topic I know will resonate with many of you, collaborative overload. Until then, stay safe, stay well and take care.